This article, which I'm going to start off uh, with this evening, uh, caught my eye um, the other day. It was in the Financial Times um, from the 1st of January, and the headline was Reasons for Hope in 2021. And it says, vaccines, Biden and broader shifts give some grounds for optimism. And uh, the editorial uh, starts off, for many, 2020 will always be synonymous with misery. The pandemic will be remembered for isolation, anxiety, and in too many cases, loss. Yet beneath the surface, there have been trends and shifts that give us, if not reasons to be cheerful for the coming year, then at least more grounds for hope for the future. Um, and the editorial goes on to talk about the uh, the upcoming or the, or the uh, the vaccine rollout that's already in process in this country, uh, giving a hope to the end of the, the chaos caused by the pandemic uh, over the last year. Uh, but uh, they caveat um, that hope with concerns that the global rollout is likely to benefit the rich countries, leaving the poor behind and causing uh, greater uh, gaps to form there. Um, the article goes on to talk about the defeat of Donald Trump and the potential for better international relations for the US, uh, but ends that section by saying that American scepticism over international trade is likely to last. Um, it then talks about how the EU has handled uh, the pandemic and that it gives hope that countries can work together in the future. Uh, but obviously, this against the background of, of Brexit and all the titters entailed. Um, and, and there are various other things it talks about. It talks about climate change a bit further down, pointing out the fact that China has committed um, in September 2020 to reduce carbon emissions to net zero by 2060. Um, but it admits that these pledges on their own will not do much to stop global warming. And I got to the end of the article and I thought, well, I'm not picking up a lot of hope in that. There's not a lot there in the way of real hope. It seems that the um, the writer of this editorial um, was clutching at straws somewhat, looking for positives uh, in, in a very uh, difficult environment. And of course, over the last year, the virus has been at the forefront of uh, headlines uh, around the world. Uh, but if we're to take that away, um, there is still an underlying situation where the world is a world in trouble. Um, there, there is still uh, terrorism going on. Uh, there are still riots. There are uh, still people being caught up in, in natural disasters. There are still wars taking place. We could go on and on, but I won't because um, hopefully this, the subject tonight is going to be a little more positive than that. Uh, but, but many people will say, well, how can you believe in a God who allows this sort of thing to happen, this sort of trouble to take place? If God's all powerful, then, then why does he allow these things to happen? And it's not necessarily an easy question to answer, but I think it's important uh, to begin to answer that, that we look at why the world is in trouble in the first place, because the Bible, which we believe is God's word, uh, is very clear about that. Uh, when we come back to uh, the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter one, 
where we have the creation record. We, we read in verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of that chapter, Genesis chapter 1, uh, we read that God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So here was a world without trouble. Here was a world where the creation that God created was very good. So what happened? What went wrong? Well, as we come into Genesis chapter 2, um, we read that God gives um, Adam, the first man, a, a commandment. Uh, he says uh, to the man, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now God had given Adam and Eve, the first human beings, free will, and that's very important. There was a good reason for that. God wanted the earth to be filled with people who love him and serve him because they want to, because they choose to, not because they're, as, as it were, programmed to, not because they are, they are forced to. So, so keep that idea in your mind. It, it will become important as we go through. Hopefully we'll see that. But the fact that God gave Adam and Eve free will um, is key to everything that, that follows so, so they could choose what they wanted to do. They could choose whether to be obedient. They could choose whether to be disobedient. They knew the punishment if they disobeyed, uh, and the choice was theirs. And as we come into chapter 3, we know what happened. Um, the woman reads, saw verse uh, 6 of chapter 3, that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, and she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. So Adam and Eve disobeyed the commandment that God had given to Adam. So God at this point had a, had a choice, didn't he? Uh, he? He could, I suppose, have overlooked it and said, well, I know I said that, but, you know, I'm a God of love, so it's okay, you're, you're forgiven, um, carry on, just, just don't do it again. But God isn't just a God of love. God is a God of love, he's a God of mercy, but he's a God of truth as well. And God had um, made uh, this law, and if he had have gone back on his word, um, then he wouldn't have been true. He wouldn't have been true to his word. And so, um, verse 17 of chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, God says this to Adam. He says, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return to the dust, the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So there's some fundamental things have happened here. Mankind, first of all, is now mortal. Um, Adam has been from, has gone from this state, Adam and Eve have gone from this state um, where they were not dying to this state where they are now dying. Uh, God says, dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. But that's not the only change that's happened here, is it? You see, the earth is no longer in this very good state that it was in chapter 1 um, and verse 31. It's now in a state of imperfection. Um, God says to Adam that he was going to have to work. He was going to have to toil. 
uh, to live. Life was going to be uh, a struggle. Instead of everything being very good, instead of everything being uh, straightforward and, and easy for Adam and Eve, it was going to become difficult in the sweat of their face. Uh, they were to eat bread. And we are under the same sentence as Adam and Eve. We've, we've inherited our nature from them. Uh, we all sin. We all fall short of God's perfect standards. Uh, and so we all die. Uh, and that's what God told us would happen uh, if we, we disobey him. So, so God is right and God is just um, in, in applying uh, that, that law. But it doesn't stop there. Obviously, this isn't the first couple of chapters in Genesis. The, the theme of the, the rest of the Bible is showing us how God is going to return to the earth to being very good again. Uh, take away the trouble that's in the earth. Um, and the Bible tells us how we can, can be a part of that. So we, we just read the, the curse that God placed on Adam. Look, look at what God says, though, in the previous verses to the serpent. Uh, verse uh, 14 of Genesis chapter 3, God says to the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, thou sh and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So, so we've got this idea of enmity and discord again, haven't we? There's a, a, a struggle and a battle that's implied here. So let, let's think about what we're being told. Sin's just come into the world. Adam and Eve have, have just transgressed God's commandment. Um, the serpent um, was one of the creatures that God had created. We read that in, uh, chapter, in, in chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, that the serpent was uh, more subtle than, than all the beasts that God had created. Um, it was capable of reason. It was capable of speech. Uh, and I suppose we can look at the serpent here as the catalyst for Adam and Eve's transgression, their, their sin. They listened or Eve listened to the serpent, um, uh, heard what it said and, and chose the way of the serpent over the way that God had given to Adam and, and Adam um, had, had, should, should have passed on to Eve. So, so the serpent becomes a symbol of the, the other side, if you like, of that choice that we all have to make. We've got God's word and God's law on the one hand, and we've got the word of the serpent that, that contradicts it. God says, if you eat of the fruit, you will truly die. The serpent says, well, if you eat of the, the, the fruit, then, then actually you won't die. Uh, you'll just become wise um, like God. And throughout the rest of the Bible, the, the serpent becomes a symbol of this opposition to God and his laws, which, which the Bible calls sin. So, so God's curse on the serpent here in Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15, it, it's, it's really important. It, it represented hope to Adam and Eve, even before God um, pronounced the, the curse um, on them and, and told them that they were going to die. It tells how, how sin was going to be overcome, how the, the way of the serpent, as it were, was going to be overcome by one of Eve's uh, descendants. See, what do we read there? Um, 
what did God say to the serpent? He said, your seed is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Um, thou shalt bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman shall bruise thy head. So we've got this picture here of um, a descendant of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. He would be injured in his heel in doing so, but the bruising to the head of the serpent was going to be fatal. It would be a fatal blow. So, so right here where everything was going wrong in Genesis chapter three, sin has entered the world. Um, the death sentence is about to be pronounced. And yet there is a seed of hope. Even at this point, um, God says um, that there is going to be this descendant of the woman who's going to be able to overcome uh, sin, overcome the way um, of the serpent. And as we come through the Bible, as we read his message, we, we, it becomes clear that the seed of the woman that was being pointed forward to was, was one special descendant. It was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God is just. God's law still stands. This is what we read in Romans chapter six. The wages of sin is death. We saw that in Genesis uh, chapter three. But in his mercy and in his love, he has offered a way out through that seed of the woman, through the Lord Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, and Paul in the letter to the Romans goes on um, in, in chapter eight to, to expand on that. And he says in, uh, in chapter eight, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And he goes on, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So, so Paul here in Romans chapter 8, he's at pains to point out that Jesus Christ, although he was the son of God, he was a human being. He was the seed of the woman. His mother was Mary. Um, he was in the likeness, as Paul says there, of sinful flesh. And yet he overcame the, the sinful flesh, the sinful nature that was in him. Um, and by associating ourselves with him through baptism, Paul, Paul calls it there, there in verse 1, um, being in Christ Jesus, we too can be made free from the law of sin and death that was pronounced on Adam back in the Garden of Eden. So let's expand uh, on this idea. Let's have a look at, at probably the most, the most famous verse um, in the Bible from, from John's Gospel. Um, I say, if you were to ask most people to quote a verse from the Bible, then this is one of the ones that they might be able to come up with. John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So as I say, it's probably the most, uh, one of the, the best known verses in the Bible. But how many people could tell you what the context was? What is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ here uh, referring to? 
we'll we'll look at that uh, in just a moment. But uh, remember what Paul said in in the Roman in in the letter to the Romans. Um, he 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 pointed out the fact that Jesus, who was um, of the seed of the woman, he he was um, he he had a sinful nature, uh, and yet he overcame it. And and by being associated with him, by being in him, we can have that hope of everlasting life that was promised back in Genesis. Uh, and this is what we're, we're reading here as well, isn't it? In John chapter three, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Just come to John chapter three and let's look at the context here uh, because it's, it's very important that we, that we see exactly what we're being told. Verse 14 of Genesis chapter, uh, sorry, of, of John chapter three. We read that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then he goes on, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but should have everlasting life. So so what is Jesus talking about here? What, what's this about the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness by, by Moses. Well, to understand, we need to come back to the Old Testament. We need to come back to um, Numbers uh, and chapter 21. And it's in the context of the nation of Israel, uh, God's people in the wilderness. They've been led out of uh, the land of Egypt, where they'd been in captivity for generations. Um, and they were in the wilderness before entering the promised land. But they had shown um, consistently and over and over again lack of faith to God. Uh, and here in Numbers chapter 21, they had been complaining about how God had been caring for them. Uh, and so God sent serpents among them. Uh, and these serpents started biting the people and uh, the bites were, were fatal. And so the people began to die. So, so when this happened, they, they repented. They came to Moses. Uh, who was their leader, and they asked God to take the serpents away. And Numbers chapter 21 and verse 8, which is on the screen there, we read, the Lord said to Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. So think about what, what's happening here. Uh, we, we've got these people who have sinned against God, who have not trusted in God. Uh, they have been bitten by these serpents. Uh, the, the bite of the serpent is a, is a fatal one. And yet if they turn in faith and look um, to the serpent on the pole that Moses is holding up, then they will live. Let's come back to John chapter 3. Um, and Jesus says, it's just like that. God so loved the world in the same way um, uh, that um, he, he loved um, the, the people of Israel back in uh, Numbers chapter 21. Um, so it is now. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, and, and he's likening himself to that serpent that was held up on the pole uh, and it's no coincidence that it was a serpent 
that was held upon the pole in, in numbers, the serpent that was held upon the pole, um, and anybody who looked in faith um, to this uh, fiery, this brazen serpent, um, would be given life, not everlasting life in, in Numbers chapter 21, but they would be given life. And what Jesus is saying is that anybody who looks to him will be given everlasting life, um, that, that they would uh, no longer be under the death sentence uh, that had been pronounced back in, in Genesis chapter 3. So if we believe in God's saviour, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have salvation from sin uh, and that sentence of death. And this is consistently the message throughout the Bible. Uh, this is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits and afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. So uh, the so resurrection, the hope of resurrection from the dead uh, is at the, the centre um, of the gospel message, the centre of the, the, the hope of the Bible. Uh, the hope that we have is by associating ourselves with Jesus, by, by putting our faith in God, we too can be raised from the dead in just the same way um, that Jesus was. So, so that's the personal hope that we have. But it's, it's a hope for the world as well. It's a hope, a hope for this world in trouble. Because Paul goes on in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, talking about the return of Jesus uh, to the earth. Um, and it says there that Jesus must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. So, so this is the message of hope that the Bible contains, uh, that Jesus is going to return to the earth um, and he's going to subdue all the, the, the bad things that, that we have in the, in the world. Um, he's even going to, to subdue death itself. And once all these things have been subjected unto him, um, then God will at last be all and in all. So, so that, in a nutshell, um, is, is the, the root of the trouble that we have in the world um, and God's answer. God isn't standing back and doing nothing. God um, put his plan of redemption there right back from Genesis uh, chapter 3, um, and he's working it out now. And we have the opportunity to have uh, a part in that. If we have faith, if we look to the Lord Jesus Christ in much the same way that those in Israel looked to the serpent on the pole and lived. So when Jesus returns, he's going to be the king of the, the world and God will be all and in all. What did the. Um, the angels say to the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus ascended to heaven uh, back in Acts chapter 11. Uh, the angel said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So this is at the centre of the hope of the gospel. Jesus is coming back to the earth, this 
this world of trouble to put an end uh, to everything that is wrong with it. Now, now there's another important element that we haven't covered here and we, we don't have time to cover this evening, but we do cover it um, on Sunday evenings very often. And that's the fact that Jesus Christ was a Jew and God's purpose with the earth has the Jewish people, has Israel at its centre. You see, in addition to being the, the promised seed of the woman, Jesus was the seed that was promised to Abraham, the father of the Jews, and to Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his son. Um, he was the seed promised to David, the, the faithful king of Israel, um, all of whom stood out because of their faith and their confidence in God's promises. So, so Jesus um, was, was a Jew. He ascended from Israel, and as the... Um, uh, as the angels that they're said in, in Acts chapter 1 verse 11, he's going to return to Israel as well. So at this point, we're going to take um, our reading. The, the reading we're going to take is from Zechariah's prophecy, just at the end of the, um, the, the Old Testament, uh, the second last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 14. Uh, and John is going to read from us, uh, for us the, the first uh, nine verses. So as uh, David said, that's uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 14. And as I said, two books before the end of the Old Testament. Really encourage you to, to turn this up so you can see the, the context. So Zechariah 14 um, verses 1 to 9. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In the summer and in the winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord, and his name one. Okay, thank you, John, for that. <clears throat> so I wanted to, to finish here uh, looking at um, Zechariah's um, 
prophecy on what's going to happen um, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, J just to, to focus our minds on how real all of this is. You see, it, it can be easy to think about the Bible as being something that's, that's kind of detached from reality. Um, many people have this idea of the hope of the Bible as being um, something that's um, very, I suppose, personal, but um, uh, but but you know, very very kind of kind of spiritual and, and with no real practical application. Uh, you you might speak to people who who talk about an immortal soul that that goes off to heaven when, when we die. Um, this isn't what the Bible teaches. This isn't the hope. Uh, that's portrayed in the pages of the Bible. It's a very practical, a very literal, a very physical hope uh, that we have. It's a hope of resurrection. It's a hope of this world on which we live becoming a place um, where trouble is it's a thing of the past, a place where God himself um, will dwell. And what we've read uh, there with John in Zechariah chapter 14 is just one of a number of prophecies that we could look at that talk about the time when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to establish God's kingdom um, in uh, in Jerusalem uh, as the capital, uh, and then um, uh, moving that out to, to cover the whole earth. So those verses we read in Zechariah chapter 14 talk about uh, a time of terrible turmoil and trouble in the Middle East, don't they? Um, I will gather, verse 2, all nations together against Jerusalem to battle. Uh, the city will be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and half the city shall go forth to captivity and the residue of the people shall be cut off um, from the city. So a terrible time um, in Jerusalem, a terrible time in the Middle East. And when we look at Middle East history over the last uh, what, 50, 70 years since the establishment of the nation of Israel back in 1948. It has been an incredibly tumultuous part of the world, hasn't it? Uh, and if you were to highlight anywhere that there was going to be a major flashpoint um, in political and, um, and, and, and military um, history, then, then this would be it. And so we've got this picture here in Zechariah uh, being painted of all the nations of the world coming together um, uh, and focusing the, their selves um, on Jerusalem. And it's going to be this, this great battle. And just when it seems that everything, um, uh, everything is over for Israel, verse 3 we read there, that the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So God um, intervenes um, and God um, comes and acts on behalf of his people Israel. Uh, verse 4 tells us that his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and, and a very great valley shall form. So this is all physical stuff. This is stuff that is going to happen. Um, and you know, we, we often have talks um, on a Sunday evening, looking at these prophecies in more detail, seeing how everything that God has said is going to happen um, is, is lining up, and we can see the nations are lining. We can see 
um, all the signs pointing to the fact uh, that this time is, this time is very near. Um, just incidentally, almost uh, this idea of a massive earthquake that's described here, the likes of which um, has never been seen when the Mount of Olives is going to be split in two and a great valley formed. Um, I, I noticed this uh, article um, just um, a couple of days ago. Um, this is from the Times of Israel um, uh, website and news site. It's on a number of others. It's uh, on the, the Daily Express website as well. Um, the headline was major earthquake killing hundreds likely to hit Israel in coming years. Uh, after probing deep below Dead Sea bed to study frequency of quakes, researchers warn that the area is due for a devastating 6.5 magnitude tembler. Um, the major earthquake, large enough to cause hundreds of fatalities, is expected to hit the country in the coming years, Tel Aviv University researchers warned on Tuesday, unveiling the results of a study that bore deep into the bed of the Dead Sea. In the coming years, it's likely that a devastating earthquake will hit, causing hundreds of deaths, the university said in a statement about the findings. Isn't that um, in incredible? All of this uh, prophesied um, thousands of years ago uh, by Zechariah and, and others uh, prophesied, Ezekiel and Joel prophesied, um, that the, these terrible troubles are going to take place as well. Um, all of it prophesied so many years ago, um, and we can see everything just lining up, just ready um, for these things to take place. So we're talking about very real, very physical events that are going to happen, that are going to completely change not just the, um, the, the, the physical landscape of the area and of the world, but the political landscape. Remember what we read back in um, 1st of Corinthians chapter 15. Um, at the end of all this, the Lord is going to be all and in all. And it's there again in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 9. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day there shall be one Lord and his name um, shall be one. So the Bible is quite clear that this is going to happen so what's that kingdom going to be like? What will it be like uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne in Jerusalem with God in control? Well, there are a number of Bible passages that talk about this. Isaiah, uh, in a number of places, gives us descriptions of what it's going to be like. Isaiah chapter 2, we read, He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Now, you might recognise those words. They're inscribed outside the United Nations headquarters in New York, um, and that's what the UN would love to achieve, isn't it? That's what they've been trying to achieve uh, since uh, their inception uh, back in the 1940s. But the Bible tells us that they're not going to be able to do it. And if you read Isaiah chapter 2, we read that the he in verse, uh, verse 2 is, is God. God's going to judge among the nations um, uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to rebuke many people uh, and they're going, to uh, they're going to beat their swords into plowshares 
and their spears into pruning hooks. The United Nations, it would be lovely if they could achieve that, but they can't. It's going to take the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of, of God's kingdom on the earth for that to, to take place. So when Jesus returns, that's what he's going to do. Isaiah chapter 25 tells us that he, God is going to swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people will he take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. We have this picture of an earth at peace with everything as God intended it. And we have uh, this hope, we have uh, an opportunity to be a part of it if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and if we put that faith into action. This is what the prophet Habakkuk um, says. He says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, God created the earth for a reason. He didn't create it to be a place of trouble. He didn't create it to be a place of imperfection. He created it to be filled with his glory. He, he created it to give him pleasure. Uh, and that will happen, that there is no doubt about it. The earth will be full of the knowledge of his glory. Now, remember I said at the start that, that God created man and woman with, with free will for a reason. He didn't want people who were going to serve him because that's what they were programmed to do. He wanted um, a people who serve him, um, who carry out his will uh, because they love him. And that's why we have the Bible. We, we have been given free will. We've been given God's word. We can learn about him. We can learn about his character. We can learn about his plan of hope for a world in trouble. And this is what Jesus said to um, his disciples. He sent them out uh, to preach um, just before he ascended to heaven. And he says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. So, so just as there was a choice for Adam and Eve um, back in the Garden of Eden, um, they could choose to obey God and live or disobey God and be condemned to death. So the same choice is there for each of us. We can choose to associate ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism to become in Christ uh, and through him um, have that promise of everlasting life. Or we can choose to ignore it. And if we ignore it, um, then we will be condemned to death, um, the death of, of Adam back in Genesis uh, chapter 3. So it's a, it's a fantastic hope that we have. Uh, it's a certain hope. It's a physical hope. It's a tangible hope that we can uh, rely on and we can live our lives by how we respond though um, is up to us thank you for listening